the thing I would encourage leaders to do is don't panic. The last few weeks have given you a huge opportunity. Grab it. Take it. You can take your teams to another level of performance, to achievement, of delivery that you haven't had before. And what's more, you can have so much fun with this. Don't miss the chance. Hello, Paul Gisby here. Have you, as a leader, watching what has unfolded since the death of George Floyd, been wondering what you could do? What action can you take to make a difference in your sphere of influence? Well, if you have, you're certainly not alone. While the subject of improving diversity and inclusion has been trending for some time, people who work in this field will tell you that since the surge in protest and calls for change, Interest in going beyond just talking about diversity and inclusion in the workplace to actually doing something about it has significantly intensified. So what should you do? Claudia Wrighton is a consultant specialising in the field of diversity and inclusion. So Kurt and I asked Claudia, how would she advise leaders to start making a difference? There are three things I'd invite leaders to consider. The first of those is consider how you show up The second one is think carefully about the talent on your teams. And the third one is how have you created a safe space for those teams? Okay, so let's let's explore those ideas. Talk to us a little bit more about what you mean by how you show up. How do you show up is your response and your interaction at a very personal and immediate level. If we think back to pre-corona days when you were in the office and everyone was face to face what was your pattern of interaction as a leader of the team were there some people that you would gravitate to usually have your coffee with share what happened over the weekend with how did you manage all the people are on your team did they have equal access to you now that we're in a world where almost everyone is meeting online How have you engaged with people to connect with them and see them in their space? Have you understood their challenges around homeschooling? How are you connecting at a personal level? So my challenge is, if you do more of interacting with people where you see them, where you're in a listening mood and where you can connect with them and and actually experience their humanity, you've done a huge amount as a leader in terms of creating an inclusive space. Mm. But how do you do that and and mean it? I mean, you could say, okay, go and engage with people. I mean, some people do that just naturally and, and maybe they, they do it already. Some people do. For others, it's harder. We're, I mean, we're all on a spectrum when it comes to personalities. If you want to do this intentionally, then you, you need to look at this as, as something exploratory. Use your curiosity to learn more about people and to have a genuine interest to see who's behind that person. Do you know some people on your team only provisionally, only marginally? Try and explore and understand what makes them tick. Now, you could take this to the limit and you could become invasive. 
and you probably get pushback straight away. So you need to find your measure. But if you come with genuine understanding and a level of bring a level of curiosity to this, you can have a lot of fun with it. And if you're well intended, that sincerity will come through and you'll receive the right response, the one that you're looking for. Yeah. Well, let's get very specific given the times. Say, for example, that you have a black person on your team. You're, you're, say you're white. I'm assuming that for the moment. A white leader, they have a black mem member of their team and they want, they think, well, I should probably try and it might be a good idea to engage that person in conversations about all that's going on and race. How do you do that and do it well? So that probably stokes up lots of anxiety in terms of treading in, in, into that area. I think the events of the last few weeks actually give you your, your entry point. First of all, I would suggest start in listening mode. We all know what's happened. It's good to understand how it's landed with, with the black person on your team. You will have probably felt trepidation. You've probably felt any range of things. But I would suggest that you invite them to share what they have felt and what it's been like for them. Another of the things that, that's connected to this is, and it's come up in a lot of the conversations in recent weeks, is this whole conversation around white privilege. It's a term that makes a lot of people run for the hills. I would suggest that you get past that. It is a, it's a difficult term, but it's difficult for a reason. If you can take the time to treat with it and really get your head around it, you will start to explore the empathy that you need to make this conversation and the relationships that you want to build going forward more useful. And I think if you really start understanding white privilege or what that means and why that term is used, then you will begin to build that empathy and it'll be received. Because again, all this work, and it is work, takes sincerity, um, and that is going to get you the response that you want. You're, you're quite, you, can't, you can't fake this. You can't read from a script and, and do something. You'll be, you'll be sensed and found out straight away. I think it's important to understand that your willingness to, to show that openness to have this conversation will be really well received by your Black colleagues and will engage them and invite them to respond in a similar manner. And then you start closing the gap. And of course, actually, just thinking about it there, I just displayed white privilege because I came in and assumed that the leader in my hypothetical situation was a white person and they were speaking to a black person, which, let's, let's admit it, is probably going to be most common given the way things are in terms of the leadership spread. But nonetheless, it could be the other way around. It could be a black leader, talking to it white colleagues, be, it, it could, could be, be the other way around. But I think the statistics are with I think the statistics are with your assumption. And I suspect that if it had been a black leader of a, of a multiracial team, that they would have navigated this space long before and they'd probably be much more attuned to it. And that in itself is another dimension of what white privilege is like. Now, one thing I know that you've 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 written about and, and talked about is this concept of microaggressions. And I think that probably is relevant to what we're talking about here as to how you show up and how you interact with people. And it's something that I'm pretty sure a lot of people who, uh, let's say, commit these microaggressions are probably unaware of. But they are a big factor and they can have a huge influence on the, the lived experience, as it's put, of 
of not just people of different races, but but all um, sort of minority representations in the workplace. So let's let's talk about those. What are microaggressions, and why are they they so pernicious? So microaggressions are important again in terms of, and and I, I want to to put this in the context of with your assumption, Paul, a white leader trying to better understand this space, this context, and how best to navigate in it. Microaggressions are important in developing an understanding because they are part of what works against the people who are not white in your team or not white heterosexual males, because that's the mainstream that defines what's normal. Microaggressions can come from well-intended inquiries or in or remarks but the 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 key thing about them and in the way that they register is that they remind the person of their difference that they're not in the in group that they're other for instance a lot of um americans first or second generation americans would remark about having a comment made in their direction of you speak english so well now, English may well be their first language, but to the person speaking to them, it seems it it sounds like a compliment. It's intended as a compliment, but to the person receiving it, it's not because it's reminding them that it's a surprise that you speak English so well because you shouldn't. The old chestnut is the classic. So where are you from? It's not the same as where's home or, you know, as if the person asking the question is is looking to categorize and differentiate and, and, and confirm their own expectations of this person's difference. And, and, and there, there are all sorts of microaggressions that, that people go through. Ultimately, they're about confirming and reminding the people who are called them non-mainstream, not white heterosexual males, middle-class males, that they are other. The person who is receiving it, they often find themselves doubting themselves. I think the term is gaslighting. You know, am I am I too sensitive? Am I taking offense? Did he really mean, maybe I just need to grow a thicker skin. So you really undermine the individual and it's a cumulative effect of these barbs that really drive physiological changes that I mean the, the, it's Harvard that's done the review the public health review that that's quantified this and the reduced mortality is stunning it's really is striking that it has been correlated to the experience the cumulative experiences of microaggressions not just in the workplace but in life and these because these don't happen like you know not every now and then they can happen multiple times in a day can't they they happen daily, yes. And if we come to, if we're talking about a leader who is keen or intent on creating a safe space, because that's one of the other things that I that I mentioned, we will invite people to do. I would invite leaders to do. This is something that you want them to to mitigate or to 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 work against. Microaggressions will happen, but when they do, is your team equipped to actually call them out and to say? Ooh, hang on a minute, what happened there? Can they retrace their steps? Is there that level of comfort? Can they move beyond the awkwardness to actually call it out and share with each other why what just happened was inappropriate or how it would have landed? Again, come back to the empathy point, how it would have landed or be received by the person who was not 
mainstream. Okay. So how do you do that then? How do you create a safe space? I mean, if you can't just turn up one day and say, right, everybody, uh, it's now a safe space. You feel okay. Say what you like. No, no problems. That's not going to be enough, is it? Clearly. And it comes back to the first step, and I'm zigzagging now, but work with me. The first step is how you show up. If you show up with a genuine interest and curiosity around people in your team that's sincere, they pick up on that and they'll reciprocate. And what have you, what have you got? You're starting to build a thing called trust. And if you create an environment where there's trust, where people then go on to experience their ability to ask questions or to explore ideas out loud that aren't shut down, that aren't ignored, that aren't closed, that people are happy to take and run with and exchange, then you start creating that environment that gives you that holy grail called psychological safety. It is built on trust fundamentally. And the signals that the leader gives are key in starting to create that space and, and, and that infrastructure that gives people permission to behave in a way that, that says we trust each other um, we don't undermine each other. We don't trip each other up. We don't ridicule each other. We have fun with each other. And we're all here for a common purpose. Is it a good idea to try and find out from, say, say the individual members of your team, what their lived experience is? You know, should you should you get everybody in, in, in the team to go around the table and say, well, you know, given what I've said about microaggressions and safe space, how do you find it? Let's, let's, let's be honest. Is that a good idea or would that be a terrible thing to do? I'd suggest you go about it another way, a different way. I don't think bef when, you're, when in, you're at the start of your journey that you can assume that people will have a level of comfort with that would allow them to be completely frank and open, which is what you want. My suggestion would be if you are intending to build something and, and you're starting off on this journey in the right way, create two sets of understanding. One is work with your data. What's your data telling you about how the people on your team have come to be where they are? What's the likelihood of the representation in your team being black? How does it relate to the proportion of the population that they come from? What's the representation like? What's the experience at recruitment? What's it like in terms of performance assessment, promotions, etc.? Build a bank of that data so you have a clear, factual basis in terms of what's the experience of people of difference within your team. To go along with that, build an understanding as well of the lived experience of what people have been through. Your point, Paul, about what what sort of what level of microaggressions have you had to contend with, and how have you dealt with them? Have you had support? Um, where have you found? the resources and the wherewithal to, to work through them. How have you respond? Build that understanding. And I would suggest that that's best done in one-to-one -one conversations offline, maybe not with the boss, but maybe with a third party who is introduced to the team as being on, on an assignment to create that, that understanding as a starting point to something that everyone is committed to changing. So, so Someone from HR or someone external? I, th I would suggest external. It depends, of course, on the re relationship with HR within the organization. I would suggest that external gives you the most space in terms of people feeling free and frank. 
but you may have a brilliant relationship and your team may have a brilliant relationship with the HR people and you may want to, to rely on them as internal consultants as well. So Claudia, I hear what you're saying about all the effort that's put in and it really resonates with me a lot. It doesn't seem like something to me that you can sort out in a week. It doesn't seem to me like something that stays sorted, even if you get it kind of sorted. It's an ever-challenging process. So how do we go about handling that? Absolutely agree with you, Kurt. This is a big commitment. So to the leader who has been wondering, what's my response to this anxiety, this concern that's risen in the last few weeks? Along with all the things I've been mentioning about how you show up, focus on talent and creating safe spaces. Understand that you're on a journey and that you need to know where you are when you start and where you want to be at the end. You need to chart this. And when you've done that, you can engage with your team and invite them to come along with you. And they will understand it won't be easy at the beginning, but you're working towards something. And you keep checking in, you keep reviewing, you never stop measuring. What gets measured gets done. And that's a continuous loop that you're on and becomes a virtuous circle because when the successes start coming in, the interest and the enthusiasm builds and the team starts flying as well. But it, is, it isn't something that happens with a week's well-intended effort. No, this is a change process and it starts with the leader's commitment he gets the resources and the support that he needs to plan that change. And he, in, he invites the commitment from his team. And that's how the change happens. And the leadership is oftentimes and very much about setting objectives and goals for, for individuals and for, mm. for teams, and particularly for measure success. I mean, how do you measure the success of this kind of thing? What kind of objectives should people be setting? What are the metrics that they should, should shoot for? I would ask leaders to consider what they want to change. What would what would things look like if they achieved what they were after? And how does this align with the business of the team itself? One of the things I really invite leaders to think about is don't make this the Friday afternoon project. Don't make this the right thing to do project that we need to, to do on top of everything else we're doing. How does this align with the business of the team? How does improving representation on your team of a broader cross-section of your wider population work with your external customer? How does it help you liaise with your supply chain? What is the business relationship between having better representation and better diversity on your team with what's actually happening within, within the walls of your business? If you can make that link, if it actually ties in and, and reinforces the strategy of your business, then you're off and running. If it's a bolt on, I think you're on shaky ground from the get go. Yeah. Okay. I'd, I'd like to talk a bit about, about talent development. But before we move on to that, just one other point on this, this, this point about showing up and, and personal interaction. So I think a lot of people will hear these messages, whether they're in leadership positions or whether they're, they're, they're just working with, with colleagues, and they'll think, okay, right, and I, I get it, and I, and I do want to do the right thing, so to speak. I think a lot of people might be nervous of doing the wrong thing and might feel inhibited. So it's going to take a little bit of courage, maybe in some situations, to think, okay, I, I need to try this. And if people do have that courage and they have a go, they're going to make mistakes. They're going to slip up. I know that. I've, I've done that myself. 
how what's your advice on how people should handle that i mean i'm assuming you'd encourage them to be courageous but what should they do then if they do inadvertently say something that that clearly is a microaggression or is inappropriate and and and, and avoid the sort of feeling around the place that there are eggshells and oh you know you say the wrong thing you you're, you're shamed for a week we come back to it. So we're back to talking about the safe space creation, because I think this speaks directly to what you're asking, Paul. If you are on this journey, which is about learning to navigate a space that's traditionally been either awkward or completely ignored, then you need to have the conversation up front that, guess what, guys, we're starting to do something that's going to be very tricky and we are going to stumble from time to time. But we need all of us to be on the lookout for each other so that when we do, we can call it out and we can also agree to have maybe once a week a sit down where we would talk about how are we doing. I really like that meeting we had on Wednesday when we were able to consider this in a way that we hadn't done before. And, and the other thing that happened on Tuesday afternoon, thank you for calling out X when when um when I said the wrong thing to Mary and assumed that she would be the one to help us understand how curry is made. So you you have a check-in point. You agree a check-in point after you've agreed up front that you are on a journey, that you will make mistakes, and that that's okay. That's part of the learning process. And as you run that, the more you run that, you start building credit in your bank for having more and more conversations that are harder. In fact, the, harder is the wrong word, for having conversations that are more meaningful because the difficulty starts to fall away as the trust builds. And sometimes that means somebody having a real blooper and, you know, not just a, a little thing where something really goes badly wrong in an interaction. But if you can hold that space and actually talk it through either as the two individuals involved or at a later point, have those two individuals share it with the rest of the team, then you're really going to be off and running. It's not an easy thing to do, but if you are going to succeed at all, you start up front by signposting that this is, this is the space we're entering and this is what's likely to happen. And then you commit to reviewing it and leading the conversation away in a way that says, I do want to explore these things. I don't expect everyone to be perfect or to be walking on eggshells. So let's understand what happened and, and how can we learn from it? And reinforcing that behavior, it has a, the spin-off effect of building the trust. Yeah, because you know, I know one thing that can happen is um, you can get clicky groups that, 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 that will pop up based upon shared interests. Uh, you know, classic one in, in the UK, for example, would be interest in football and soccer. So people come back of a, of a Monday morning and they say, oh, you know, your team was terrible and did you see the game and all that kind of, kind of stuff. And that, that can be very uh, exclusive for people who aren't uh, into football. Um, so, but we're not saying, but so don't talk about things that other people might not be in, involved in, are we? We're not saying you can't have that kind of, of chatter. That would be unrealistic, wouldn't it? But what, what we're saying is the football fans who normally have that exchange on the Monday morning after a football weekend, fine, carry on. But spare a thought for the person who may not be 
a supporter of your team. They may be a football fan. Have you taken the time to dis- to have the conversation with them and find out? Or there may be something else that they're interested in, but it's about being deliberate and intentional to include them in a in another conversation or if they're not willing to take part in that football conversation. So you open it up if you can. And if that's not their thing, then there's something else that you can explore with them as leader, which means you can have the casual conversation that isn't that isn't football and that isn't work. But it, it will take effort to understand what makes that person tick. What did they spend their weekend doing if they weren't looking at football? We had a very nice example on a previous episode where we were talking with with Neil Reavy, who is very active in in uh, LGBTQ plus matters, particularly within the pharmaceutical industry. And uh, and he is not a football fan, but he talked about when he was on a team where all the other people were big football fans, and and a lot of the off work chatter was about football, and he felt that he needed to go away and mug up on the latest news on what was happening so that he could join in the conversation and, and, and appear to be one of the boys, so to speak, even though he didn't like football. And to this day, I still don't think he's a, he's a, big, he's a big fan. See, as a, as a leader, that's something you'd, you'd really want to be sensitive to. And it, it's, it's a balancing act because you want your football fans to, to enjoy the review of the game, but you also want to include the, the non-football fan, whether it's in an, a, a, a separate and additional conversation that they can all take part in or in some other way. And another um, classic poll that you may have heard of, again, pre-corona times, is where the Muslim member of the team misses out on the afterward drinks. Um, because where where the team decides to get together, they're going to a space that's just off limits to a Muslim. Women also experience this where the golf course comes in. So there, there are lots of instances where the in-group can create a space that excludes people on the periphery of the team. And it's about having the sensitivity to be aware of that and to remove those boundaries and find ways of, of including people, all the people on the team. Let's talk a bit about talent because um, I, I mean, I know you've got this this point which I'm, I'm certainly very uh, interested in, which is, you know, diversity and inclusion doesn't just have to be something that should be done because it's morally correct, if that's the way to put it. There's there's also a real potential competitive advantage in having strong diversity and inclusion, and that particularly plays through in how you look at talent. So talk to us a bit about that. Absolutely. So the the point needs to be made here. We come back to that that label, that phrase, diversity and inclusion. Some people invert it and call it in, inclusion and diversity. And there's a reason to that twist as well. And it's because if you have a diverse group of people that isn't inclusive, then you're probably going to have a lower level of performance than if you had a homogenous team because the frictions will be there, the, the interest and the willingness to interact and exchange will be missing and you will be heading to hell in a handcart. So where you want to be is to have the holy grail, come back to that, of people who are going to bring and offer your team diversity of thought you move away from groupthink, you amplify your creativity and your innovation, 
And ultimately, you bring a rigor through the challenge and the exchanges that you can have with a with completely diverse thought across your team and improve your outcomes, the quality of your outcomes and your production. And the, the research is, is well documented. It shows that where you have teams that achieve those two things, the diversity and the inclusion, then their performance outstrips their peers without them by some way. And then we're talking about financial measures to teams and organizations that manage to institutionalize this. So it becomes something, it can become, as you say, absolutely a competitive advantage, not to mention uh, in terms of a, a theme of attraction for your business into the wider world. If you look again at the people who've been involved in the George Floyd marches, and we're talking about from Tokyo to Canberra, to New York, to Seattle, and everything in between. This striking thing this time around is the real diversity of those groups marching. It's not just Black people. Everyone who has woken up to this atrocity is out there. And that's your talent market for tomorrow. They're looking to join an organization that understands this and has, un and has created a space and a world that responds to this demand for equality. So talent and how you manage talent is very much a, a sign in your in your window uh, that says yes we're open to the best talent because this is the way we see people we see all people as equal and everyone has an opportunity to advance in our organization i, w I wanted to pick up on one of the things that uh, that claudia mentioned about um diversity of thought so when it comes to diversity of thought I do have personal experience of, of being on teams where there was a high level of inclusion. There was a high level of trust. And all the things that you mentioned were present in that team. We had an increased level of creativity. We had an increased level of innovation. And at the same time, we had an increased level of rigor of thought because people really felt comfortable to share ideas mm -hmm. and then to work with those ideas and bring them together. I also have the experiences that a lot of us have where we have teams that are not so inclusive, not so diverse. There's a lot of groupthink and there's a lot of defensiveness to ideas that are brought up and shot down right away. And here, of course, you don't have the creativity, you don't have the rigor, you don't have the innovation, you don't have any of it. So when you mention these things, I can relate to both of those experiences. And obviously, I know which ones I prefer. Mm. The teams who, that were truly inclusive are some of the highlights of my career. Mm. So I believe that a lot of us have those sorts of examples in our heads. What is the difference maker is what everybody wants to know. What have you learned over time that helps take a step towards the sort of teams we all want to be working on? No, thank you for sharing that, Kurt, because I think, sadly, not everyone has that lived experience. But mm -hmm. those of us who can contrast the two, having had what you describe, but also having less salubrious experiences on teams. We know how golden the former is. They really are precious. And in my experience, both lived experience and from the research, it really is about leadership. 
It doesn't happen by accident. So creating the safe space that you describe, which is showing up, is, it starts with how that leader shows up. Go back to the, the first point that I was inviting leaders to do. Is this person someone you would easily build trust with? Do they show a genuine interest in you? Do they show a genuine interest in your teammates? Are they creating an environment where you feel welcome, where your thoughts are welcome, where you're invited to contribute, where people want to build on, on each other's ideas? How does the leader hold that space? I submit none of that happens unless you have a leader who is big enough to do that. And that's why this is really a, a, a leadership issue. Mm. All right. So let's let's say that we have our leader and that he or she understands what they're taking on and they're up for the challenge. I, what practical steps should they take? The thing that I would I would recommend and urge people to do is really come to grips with all the data surrounding all your talent processes. What do I mean from attraction? from before someone is recruited into the business through to their progression through the business and also understanding what happens from your exit interviews when people leave the business. What's your attrition telling you? And understanding, as I say, how people are filtered, what proportion of, of black people apply for a role are then shortlisted and are then presented with an offer. What do you understand by that throughput? and get that data together and understand where your sticking points are. So it's not just people coming into the business, it's how they progress, how they advance, how they're promoted, how they're selected for the key assignments, because that's a huge determinant of how and whether they progress. And also try and understand when they do, when, when and if they do leave the organization, what the reasons are. So, Claudia, talk a little bit more about the sticking points that you just mentioned. What mm -hmm. have you seen specifically as uh, some of the common sticking points and what what can be done to overcome those? Right. One of the things that that really jumps out from the sticking points, Kurt, is the apparent incidence of unconscious bias. Now, this is this is a label that is really well worn across um, the corporate world now. I think everyone's come across it. And what is unconscious bias? It is the internalization of all those codes, if I call them that, that have come to define normal. Come back to that other phrase, the white privilege thing, so that any departure from that subconsciously for all of us, whether we're black or we're white or all of us tend to see those as less than. So it is more difficult, and the data will tell you that, for a black person with equivalent qualifications to be shortlisted for a role, from shortlisting to have a job offer, et cetera, et cetera. So what happens if we acknowledge that, yes, we're all being subconsciously driven by or, or bringing these codes to bear, then what do we do? A lot of organizations have resorted to unconscious bias training. And I, I want to really caution about using that as a solution in this area. Unconscious bias as a topic, as an area for discussion is absolutely fascinating. And we could spend 
days on end talking about it for, in terms of the neuroscience, in terms of the parts of the brain that are engaged, in terms of why it was why it's evolved for us evolutionarily um, and, and the value that it adds because the fast and slow thinking actually have their places. There's a reason why we, we do what we do. But all of that is nothing if we don't really have steps in place to mitigate it. Because I really firmly believe you cannot exhort people to go to move beyond their bias. You can make them aware of it. You can help them to feel more responsible and accountable for it. All that's good. All that's brilliant. But the real commitment to doing things different comes when you actually build insulation into your processes. What do I mean? Recruitment is one of the obvious ones that gets trotted out. Will you have anonymized CVs for the front end of the process? When you actually come to evaluate candidates, will you have a diverse um, panel that they will, but will be <laughs> recruiting them? Do you have that capability within your organization? Then when you do assess that panel, are you using techniques that mitigate against people's biases showing up? Have you created a safe space where before the candidates are engaged with, the, the panel themselves sits down and says, listen, guys, I just need to tell you, I have a real problem with tattoos. If anybody shows up and you find me not listening to that person with a tattoo really well, just, you know, nudge me, let, bring it to my attention. Another, other techniques you can use in, act, in how you process the people that you're reviewing. One of those is being absolutely crystal clear on what the criteria are for the role that you're recruiting to. So that then they're not the figment of different people's imaginations and their different things. And being very explicit around what those are. And when you set them out, you evaluate by characteristic across the piece and then the next characteristic across the piece. So what you're doing is you are spending less time dealing with the individual as a whole that you may have some instinctive negative reaction to. And therefore, you're able to compile a composite by going about it on a characteristic by characteristic level. You end up with an aggregate picture of, of this individual. And it may turn out that Joe with the tattoos actually has the highest scores on all the things we're looking for. I'm describing this to, to share that there are things you can do in terms of process engineering around recruitment, around performance management and assessment, around promotions, around project assignments that actually mitigate against the biases that, that are at play all the time. And if you don't do that process piece, if all you do is exhort people over the head and say, well, I sent you on that online unconscious bias course, so you're fixed, mm -hmm. you're fine. That's not going to cut it. And I mean, there are so many ways in which bias can creep in, aren't there? And um, I'm remembering uh, recently I was listening to a podcast on uh, the history of IQ tests, uh, early IQ tests, and how uh, a lot of these tests seem to be biased against black subjects and, and, and biased in favour of, of white subjects. Black subjects did significantly worse than white subjects, leading to an assumption that, oh, well, there's a difference in intelligence between the two groups, except because it's nothing to do with that. And actually, the probably the real reason uh, was that the 
IQ tests themselves, the questions were written from a white perspective. They dealt with topics that white subjects were much more likely to know about, and the way the questions were phrased would make more sense to the white subjects than, than, than other subjects. Uh, culturally coded. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And th that prompted me to think the same must be true of questions that we ask in interviews, say, maybe maybe the, the way we ask questions or the, the kind of answer you that you expect. Even before then, the ad. The ad. A lot of people have been spending time on, on revisiting their ads and the language that they use. Um, even uh, you spoke about different aspects of difference, not just the black community, but the LGBT community, the, the way some job descriptions are phrased tend to exclude people from that community. And lots of organizations have been keen to revisit that. It's part of the front, what I call the front end of the process re-engineering. So ensuring that your job descriptions are tight, they're crisp, and you've done the work to filter out things that would that would begin to exclude people it's it's but it's all it's all part of the work mm, mm. well unfortunately we're running out of time so claudia can i ask you to give us a distilled message that we can leave our listeners with the thing i would encourage leaders to do is don't panic the last few weeks have given you a huge opportunity grab it take it you can take your teams to another level of performance, to achievement, of delivery that you haven't had before. And what's more, you can have so much fun with this. Don't miss the chance. Brilliant. Thank you. A big thank you to Claudia for taking the time to talk with Kurt and me. If you want to make changes of the kind we've been discussing, I mean, I think it's clear that it will take investment of time, effort and yes, money. But I think we're hearing that the right word is investment because we aren't just talking about making ourselves and our organisations look better. We are talking about creating an environment that's going to allow everyone and consequently the whole organisation to thrive in a way that maybe it never has before. If you'd like to know more about Claudia and her work, as usual, her contact details are in the show notes. This has been a Talking Leaders production. We work with leaders who want to be heard, understood, and to build trust. I'm Paul Gisby. Goodbye.